Welcome to Making Peace Visible. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably concerned by the level of polarization we're living with in today's world. We can point fingers at social media, the news media, political parties, fear-mongering leaders, poor education, broken political systems. The list is long. The divides can seem so vast, the problems so huge. It's easy to retreat into a huddle with the people who see the world the same way you do. But our guest today, psychologist and peace builder Peter T. Coleman, says there are things each of us can do to help heal these societal wounds. By extension, there are things the press and media can do as well to reduce polarization. Peter outlines evidence-based practices that you can do on your own or with a group to help recalibrate assumptions and recreate bonds with people you disagree with. Peter has partnered with an organization called Starts With Us to turn the lessons from the book into a new online challenge called Finding the Way Out. It's kind of like an exercise routine, but instead of building muscle, you're building compassion. The book is focused on the United States, but the exercises can be done anywhere. Peter is a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. I began our interview by asking Peter, how do you measure polarization? Polarization is a, is a fuzzy concept, but it is something that's measured in different ways. One way they measure it is just looking at our Congress and looking at the numbers of times that members of Congress cross the aisle and work in a bipartisan way versus become more obstructionist and refuse to play with the other side. And so that's the, the one of the better measures we have that mm-hmm. go, goes back to the 1860s. And since then, you know, there was a period of time for decades where our leaders in Washington came together and problem solved and were able to pass important and big legislation. But really beginning approximately in the mid-1970s, we see an increase in, a decrease in bipartisanship and an increase in obstructionism and political polarization in Washington. It also has trickled down and it's in families and relationships. And so half of America feels estranged or alienated from someone in their own personal family mm-hmm. because of politics. And so people spend less time together at Thanksgiving and they avoid one another more and more, or they start to feel more isolated and insulated from the ones they love. And so it, it is this, what the book is called, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, Because political polarization is not a bad thing with a two-party system. It's a good thing. It's good to have smart, passionate people who believe in different ways to solve problems, pushing each other to try to find better solutions. And in fact, in the 1950s in America, political polarization was missing. And people were calling for more separation between the parties and their positions. But today, it's really gotten to this place where it is toxic. We're easily triggered by the other side. Those things are weaponized by multiple nefarious actors. And we're stuck. We're stuck in a, in, a, in a terrible dynamic and in a country with more than 400 million guns that we know about, yes. which is a dangerous cocktail. Very dangerous. Let me ask you one more question about it. When you talk about the two sides in this country, are you talking about Democrats and Republicans or are the divisions we're dealing with more complex than that? 
Well, they're always more complex because obviously you see divisions within de- the Democratic Party and within the Republican Party, the pro-Trump, anti-Trump Republicans and the pro-Bernie uh, right. Democrats. And it used to be, frankly, that we were a more complex society in terms of how we thought about major issues, you mm-hmm. know, gun control, abortion, gay rights, immigration, healthcare. These are complicated issues, but people could hold sort of different opinions on those Today, what Pew sees is something called ideological coherence, like sort of a collapse of our thinking in independent ways about different issues. And now we just follow our tribe, mm-hmm. right? We, yeah. we, if the Democrats have positions on that, I follow them. If the Republicans do, I oppose them. But what I think is exciting about the work you and your colleagues are doing is that you're demonstrating that it's possible to address it. In, in fact, you've initiated several projects designed to address it. Yeah. But one thing that I think it's true is that it takes a lot of work. It's not easy. Yeah, that's the hard reality. You know, there are a constellation of things that work together to pit us against each other and pull us apart. And so it will take a variety of actions. But but as you say, the kind of good news of these days, and particularly the, the January 6th insurgency of the, of the Capitol, the attack in the Capitol, really mobilized many Americans and people like in the international peace building world that were doing good work abroad, Mm -hmm. suddenly saying, we need to take a look at America. We need to come back here. We need to kind of pivot, right? So there are many good actors doing good things. And that's that's the hopeful news. There's a project that was called Hands Across the Hills that was led by a great peace builder who sadly passed away this past year, Paula Green who founded the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding. And after spending a lifetime working on bitter, violent conflicts all over the world, she brought together people from the hills of Western Mass with folks from coal country in in Kentucky and supported them in talking openly about their differences. Their differences were huge, but they did finally meet, you know, the Massachusetts folks went to Kentucky and the Kentucky folks came... And they really talked with facilitation from a master peace builder. Yeah. Yep. And face-to-face and, and spent time together. Spent time important. together. Exactly. Yeah. You wrote an article in Time magazine about you and your neighbor trying to do the same thing on a personal scale. How do we, how do we bring that to a, a much larger scale? I mean, because it is a lot of work. Yes, it's an immensely complicated set of problems. But what I do want to talk about is like, what, like if you wanted to do this tomorrow, how, how do you begin, right? Mm-hmm. As an individual. As an individual. You mentioned this Time Magazine piece that I published a, a month or so ago about an experience I had the summer with my neighbor. And that was part of this group that we put together. I wrote this book, The Way Out. It was published in June, 2021. But as you and I know, not many people read books anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so over the past six months or so, we've been sort of saying, okay, so what we do is in this book is offer kind of five ideas from science that are about how to break patterns like this and how to pivot in a different direction, how to have societies done that and how to, can individuals do that in their life. And so we started to work together and we built what we're calling a kind of political courage challenge 
And it's a series of activities that you can do in your life that are as little as five minutes a day. And the more you do, the more you kind of build up a sort of muscles and change habits and mm-hmm. start to shift in a new direction. So, right. so, so we built this thing. It's called the Finding the Way Out Challenge. So I wanted to give people real things that they could do that would be as little as five minutes a day, longer if you want to, and that walk them through a series of what we call kind of building blocks, which start with you spending some time reflecting on you and your attitudes and your assumptions and your probably misperceptions of those on the other side and their and their attitudes. So basically what this challenge that we call it is, it's just a set of activities that you can do, starts with you, scales up to your in-group, then encourages you to find somebody on the other side and start to try to engage with them. And then ultimately suggests that you take on an issue if you can find a group of people that, that are willing to give this a shot, that's when it really works best. Because that's what I did this summer, is I had a group of my former students and colleagues and said, hey, would you be willing to try this with me? And so we did it. And then every week we'd get on a Zoom and we'd complain and say, this is hard, or, or, <laughs> or this was fantastic, it surprised me, or I didn't I had no idea I thought this way. You know, we had these kind of great conversations which help. Right. You have to leave your comfort zone a little bit. Leave your comfort zone. But but if you can do it with other people, right, if you can do it with a friend or two or, you know, your siblings or whoever is willing to join this with you, it gives you some space to make sense of it and not it doesn't leave you on your own to try to work through this. If you'd like to try the Finding the Way Out challenge, head to www.startswith.com. U.S. slash finding the way out. Even better, you can find a link in our show notes. In the next part of the interview, I asked Peter to talk about the relationship between media and toxic polarization. When you did your book launch back in June 21, in a Q&A, there was an interesting question, who benefits from toxic polarization? And in your answer, you said that the election of Donald Trump was a boon to mass media outlets like CNN and MSNBC and Fox because he was a polarized figure. But then there's this cycle where people consume that media and become even more polarized, I mean, where it kind of builds on itself. How do we reverse that cycle where, where the media is actually making money off of the conflict? Well, so, right. I think, I mean, you're getting to one key parameter here, which is the business models behind both social media and media, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, because there's intense competition for attention and what gets attention, it's conflict, it's contentiousness, it's screaming matches, mm-hmm. and people are entertained by that. And so the entertainmentization of news media that ironically comes from the 60 minutes effect, right, that news... News used to be for the common good, and economically, it was a loss leader. You didn't make any money on the news, right? right? right. But then 60 Minutes made some money, and suddenly people were like, oh, you can make money? Right. <laughs> Let's do stuff that's provocative and right, outrageous. Right. And so, 
So there is a long now history of our news media, more mainstream news media, moving in the direction of entertainment and provocation and contentiousness. So that's the business model in when you have competing industries. And so taking a hard look at the consequences of that, that is something that Solutions Journalism is trying to do that Amanda Ripley has written about. I think it's a really important thing to do. And and social media. I mean, social media is worse because social media is more constant. It's a, it's a flow in your life. It is it is highly addictive, and it is built built on their their most of the major platforms business models are built on provocation, competition, social comparison. It is pitting us against each other from from its onset. I tell a story in The Way Out about an event I was invited to in 2018, which was I got some invitation from some organizer of a major political movement who said, we want to talk about polarization on the internet. Can you come to this pop-up meeting? Showed up. It had like some of the top executives at Facebook and one of the founders of Facebook was there and Jigsaw and Google and all these folks were there and some, some academics like me. And they put up, they wrote up on the whiteboard to start what kind of dialogue should we be having to promote a healthy society? Good question. Yeah. And I said, okay, what do you mean by dialogue? And there was silence. Right? <laughs> and I said, because in, in my business, which is kind of peace and conflict, that has a very specific term. Most people think it means debate. And debate is a competitive game that we try to win. Yeah. Now, that's an important distinction. Really important. And then I described what dialogue is, which is the opposite of debate. Dialogue is a process of learning and discovery. If you're really in dialogue and you're telling your story honestly and personally and other people are telling their stories about an issue honestly and purposely, you start to learn a lot not only about them and how complicated these issues are, but you learn about yourself. Mm -hmm. That's what real dialogue is about. That's real dialogue. And so I offered this to the group and said, I made this distinction between debate and dialogue. And then there was another beat of silence. And then this co-founder of Facebook said, oh, well, if that's dialogue, then there's no major platform on the internet that promotes it. It's all <laughs> about competition and fighting. And, and he said, Zoom is, because that's a place where you can dialogue and learn. Right. But other than that, you got nothing. So the business model of these things is, is pitting us against each other. Right. I, I guess what I want to say in defense of journalism is that this is a natural human tendency. We focus on the things we fear. This has happened in science forever, in psychology and in medicine. We focus on pathologies and things we fear. And then eventually, maybe we get to the things like maybe we should study love or <laughs> flow at work or optimism or what makes peaceful country peaceful. Or what makes for peace. And, and in fact, yeah, that's one thing I want to cue up for your listeners is that there are actually scores of peaceful societies around the world, but we just don't cover them. <laughs> we don't know about them. So it's true that we humans have a tendency to focus on, pay attention to threats and things they fear. That's where the research is. That's where journalists go. And that is ultimately, it's a vicious cycle because it then promotes the sense that the world is much more threatening and increases anxiety and all of that stuff, while there are many positive solutions. So I do think it's important to recognize that hope and fear are two fundamental human motives. 
that we inordinately spend a ton of time on the fear side and that we don't present enough about the hope side, but that when we do, when we do it well, when we do it in ways that are compelling and engaging and and surprising, that it can they can be very compelling stories and they plant seeds in people that give them a, some sense of what they can do, not just hopelessness, right? Not just climate change is out of control, but what can you do, right? Like, what does that really right. look like? That's a really important distinction. What do you think that journalists can learn from reading your book? I mean, what lessons do you think they can apply to their practice? Well, it's a good question. And I'd love to turn that around and invite journalists to read the book. And then let's talk about it. There are five principles in the book that I focus on. And one of them is about, well, one of them is is just how you start. And the question is always, what's your intention? Like, what kind of impact do you want to have? So yeah, there's a story breaking. And clearly, part of your impact is that you want it to be compelling and get attention and help your reputation. But part of it is that you want to do no harm. And part of it is that you want to inform in a way that maybe is helpful to our society or to a community, right? Mm -hmm. So simply asking yourself that question before you go in ain't bad, right? That's a place to start. No, it's a good place to start. I can't speak to the editorial process enough, although I, I do think how business and other interests influence media. The Koch brothers have been with others buying up a lot of local uh, television stations and radio stations across the country to influence the political content and influence what they don't talk about, like fossil fuels. And it's and it's pervasive. And so that is controlling the media. And again, it's a political strategy. I get it. And and they're good at it. And they've been trying to quietly do it for a long time. And so it's the, it's the long game, but it has implications for what we what we trust and what we hear locally. And and by the way, that's where the trust is. Trust in media is way down. Trust in corporations is way down. Trust in na- national government is way down. But locally, trust in local media trust in local politicians, trust in local businesses. They're actually very trusted. And so those are really important institutions. And I think some of these nefarious actors understand that. And they're trying to weaponize those too. And that's terrifying. Yeah, that is terrifying. Because, I mean, when when lots of local newspapers are just simply fed a yeah, talking you know, points. feed, so to speak. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, part of the problem is that, at least in, in the conventional sense, we're trying to report on, on peaceful efforts. The drama is in what's not happening. <laughs> Sometimes. Know, I mean, in a I weird get, sort yeah. of way. But, yeah. but there is a human drama that I think a lot of journalists are missing. Of course, there are many dramatic events uh, associated with peace and reconciliation processes. But you're right, they're usually not captured by the media, captured by film and television in a way that's particularly compelling. There's one particular story that I've used to illustrate these types of dialogue processes, which took place in Brookline, Massachusetts, in in the area of Boston. In 1994, there was a horrific shooting in a couple of women's clinics by a pro-life anti-abortion zealot who killed a couple of women and injured others. The communities were devastated. The archdiocese, the mayor, 
the governor of Massachusetts were all calling for essentially peace talks um, between the pro-life, pro-choice sides. And in the interim, what started to happen was a, 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 a clandestine process, a secret process of six women, three pro-life, three pro-choice leaders uh, who had been activists and, and basically challenging one, one another in their professional uh, careers for years. They agreed to come together secretly, quietly, and talk initially just for one month. They agreed to four uh, sessions of a conversation, essentially to bring down the violence. Uh, the process was facilitated by a, a group called uh, the Public Conversations Project. So they continued to meet up into the one-year anniversary of the shooting. And then even after that, continued to speak together in secret in a, in a church basement um, or the basement of a, of a home um, for almost six years. And then uh, in 2001... The six women came out publicly uh, with an article um, called Talking with the Enemy about their experience and about their process. And so that event not only changed the women themselves, their own experience of one another, of the other side, of the issues, um, but it it affected their activism. And it really sort of calmed down the tone of the you know, pro-life, pro-choice rhetoric in the Boston area. And the encounters between the women were very intense. They really believed that the other side was evil and tainted and that to sit with them was morally wrong. Um, and it took a long time of these facilitated dialogues for these women to come to a place where they really came to care for one another. They really describe it as, as loving one another and really appreciating, respecting one another. There's a recent film that has come out called Abortion Talks. It's a documentary series that was made by a couple of um, independent filmmakers um, out of Boston, out of Cambridge. But what the filmmakers realized they need to do in order to sell this and get Americans to watch it is make it a kind of crime documentary, right? And, that, and then to kind of bring in the peace building and peacemaking that was going on in the background. Well, as, that's interesting. Isn't that? Yeah. And I think strategically that was really creative and important, compelling. And I've seen it and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in it too. So I'm promoting myself again, but but it's a it's a a compelling series i recommend it to your audience yeah no that sounds very interesting in terms of kind of getting to the end of conflict i mean you you said there are three things that matter to get warring groups to pause their battle and the first is instability and i think we've nailed that one yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're there. We definitely we, we're good at that. Between the pandemic, the Trump presidency, the rise of racism, nationalism, the derailment of norms, the wars in Ukraine, Yemen, Ethiopia, and others, the world, not just America, but the whole world has become unstable. But how does instability move groups towards compromise? Well, often what happens when things like COVID hit is that they unite us, right? There is a thing in my field called disaster diplomacy when there's an attack like 9-11 and suddenly we feel like we're a unified group. 
usually against something else. And it can be an epidemic like COVID that could unite us, but ironically, it didn't. It, it further didn't. divided us, right? <laughs> right. So usually, things like COVID would have brought us together as a nation to fight this fight, which did happen in other nations and didn't happen here because it was weaponized for political gain. Right. So, so that that's why polarization is such a big problem. But you're right. In the book, I say there are three things that matter. One is having enough miserable people, and we do have there some by some estimates, eighty-seven percent of Americans are exhausted and fed up and want to do some other thing other than what we're doing, which is screaming at each other and not getting anything done in Washington. The second component is being destabilized, and even the last year's the the Great Resignation that happened last year where about a third of the workforce voluntarily quit their jobs. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah, that tells us that we're we're in a state where people are sort of saying, all right, wait a minute, how do I want to live my life? How do I want to treat my neighbors? What do I want to do with my time? If you have the the privilege of being able to ask those questions, people are asking those questions. So we're fed up, we're destabilized, but the third thing that we've learned from something called ripeness theory is that those conditions can lead to peace or can lead to depolarization or can lead us down a better future path if we know what to do. That's why I wrote The Way Out. Because The Way Out says, okay, if you're fed up, if you feel destabilized, if you feel anxious and you want to try something else, try this. Here's some things from science that tell us help and that matter in your life. And if you do these exercises, like one of the exercises I offer is something I do, and I've had to force myself to do this, <laughs> which is that when something breaks on the news, I intentionally follow a handful of people who I think are smart and decent and well-intentioned, but politically on the other side of the fence from me. And so when something breaks, I go to their Twitter feed. I seek them out in the media. I want to hear the voices that aren't the same people comforting me with the same kind of values that I have. Well, the other factor that has surfaced very, very strongly is racism. Race, gender, power, between abortion and Black Lives Matter. And in a sense, we're surfacing problems that America has never really dealt with. And then, and then on one side, there's a whole movement of people saying, don't tell us about the past. How do we deal with those, kind, those kinds of issues? I mean, that's a big question. Well, again, you, no, it is a big question, but it's, this is core to our democracy from the beginning, right? There are oftentimes reformers, and then there are more conservatives that want to honor the past and, and keep things more as the status quo. This tension has been with us from the beginning, we're a democracy, and that's the idea, is that these tensions are worked through in civil discourse, in policy, in legislation, right, in, in, in court cases. What we've done is lost the capacity to trust those institutions or to trust each other to work through those things. So, so that's why, again, you're right that, for example, the, the, the murder of George Floyd and the variety of murders of black black and brown Americans around that time, what led to a, 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 an increase in awareness of injustice and an increase in a need to talk about those things. And ultimately, that should help this country move forward in, in terms of our inclusiveness and our recognition of the 
institutionalized racism that this country was founded on. But those are hard conversations. My premise right now, because uh, frankly, you know, I have an activist side of me and I have a peace builder side of me, and I try to hold on to both of those. (laughs) Right. And that's a challenge. It is a challenge. And when I talk to activists today about sort of lowering the temperature, that makes them angry. So I, I think we need both. We need we need activists, we need litigation, we need to fight against authoritarianism and all of that stuff. And we need to be able to do it in a way where we don't trigger a civil war. Because I've been to war zones and yeah. I've seen what happens to societies that are devastated by those conditions. And there, that's a whole different game. And John Meacham and and Doris Kearns Goodwin and other noted historians are really drawing close parallels from today to the the 1850s in America before the U.S. Civil War. And we do not want to go back there. No, we don't. Absolutely not. So we have to do whatever we can to bring in the guardrails and to find ways to differ on these issues and be active and to fight for these issues but not in a way that triggers us into violence or, or guerrilla warfare, right? Which is not right. an impossibility in this country because of the degree to which we're so armed. But, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, voices like yours are like whispers. <laughs> That's why I keep pounding on the table. No, I think you're doing a fabulous <laughs> job. I really think you're doing a fabulous job. And the, the problem is that voices like Trump's at the other end of the spectrum, are like with megaphones. But it's 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 the same challenge that you've spoken to that journalists have, I think, is we just have to figure out compelling ways to tell these stories, right? We have compelling ways to tell these stories. We have to have easy, accessible ways of changing people's habits and behaviors and attitudes. And again, I think there are clever people working on this. I really, I think that there's ways to have an impact, you know, and I, I hold up the the abortion talks documentary as one way to be clever about how you tell a story about a dialogue group that perhaps few people want to hear, right. but you tell it in the juxtaposition of crime and court cases. You know? Right? <laughs> so, no, I mean the the core of any great novel is emotional change, where somebody transforms, and the nature of conflict resolution is the same thing. It's getting people to, I mean, to to see each other as human beings rather than as a representative of a ideology or a tribe. But yeah. it is important to recognize that if, if you really want to try to understand somebody else, if you really want to have a conversation where you both learn and are open to that, it, it takes time. It helps to walk together when you do it. But you you really have to begin by by listening and sharing as honestly as you can where you are. Yeah, active listening. Really, really get in. Really listen. Yeah, really listen, and and again, allow them the space to discover whatever and share whatever. But also, it requires us to be honest too. Yes. Right. It's not just listening to kind of take advantage of that. I think what it really requires is you contributing to that too. Right. Like you need to be honest about the fact that our side doesn't have all the answers either, and we have our own pathologies, and the, and they're both true. Right. Mm-hmm. Peter, that, that I think that may be a good place to end. I think that there is definitely a lot more to talk about, and I'm looking forward to hearing the results of some of the new research that you're working on. I want to thank you very much, not only for spending time with us today, but for the work you're doing. 
it's great that you're doing what you're doing and keep on doing it. Well, th- thank you so much for having me on. My apologies for thumping on the table so much as I speak. I know that's annoying. Definitely do become excited and passionate yes. about this. Well, that, no, that's, that's what drives you. So we're grateful for that. Peter T. Coleman's latest book is called The Way Out, and there are links in our show notes to Peter's book and to the website for the Finding the Way Out Challenge. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrea Moraskin. I'm Jamil Simon. Peter Agus is the creative director of War Stories, Peace Stories. We had support on this episode from Faith McClure. If you're enjoying the show, we have a favor to ask. Please tell a friend or a family member about it, or even a frenemy. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. Thanks for listening, and talk soon.